This episode is brought to you by our incredible community of listener supporters on Patreon. Our Patreon offers listeners exclusive archival content, extended episodes, and access to community conversations diving deeper with past guests. Your monthly pledge ensures that For the Wild has the funding to keep producing informative, thoughtful, and rooted conversations and programming. All funding supports our small team of creatives, podcast production, and special For the Wild projects like our zines and slow study courses. To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild, or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for the wild.world slash donate. For the Wild podcast is brought to you in part by the Calliopeia Foundation and listeners like you. Calliopeia supports projects interweaving spirituality, culture, and ecology. We are grateful for their support and the support of grassroots contributions from listeners. To learn more about the Calliopeia Foundation, visit calliopeia.org. To make a donation to For the Wild, visit forthewild.world donate or support us through Patreon. Hello and welcome to For the Wild podcast. I'm Ayana Young. Today I'll be speaking with Dr. Helen Caldicott, In the early 1980s, Helen was president of the group Physicians for Social Responsibility, an organization of 23,000 doctors committed to educating their colleagues about the dangers of nuclear power, nuclear weapons, and nuclear war. So there's no net energy reduction by using nuclear power. In fact, there's probably more as the concentration of the uranium ore decreases. And then you've got to store this radioactive waste forever, which will require also huge amounts of energy and transport it and the like. And it takes 10 to 15, 20 years to build a nuclear power plant these days. And it costs 15 to $20 billion to build. And the radioactive waste will produce epidemics of cancer, leukemia, genetic disease and congenital deformities for the rest of time. How can they call it clean energy? How dare they? She founded the Women's Action for Nuclear Disarmament in 1980 and won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1985. Helen Caldicott, a graduate of the University of Adelaide School of Medicine, was a faculty member of Harvard Medical School and in 1974 founded the Cystic Fibrosis Clinic at Adelaide Children's Hospital. In 1971, she played a major role in Australia's opposition to French atmospheric nuclear testing in the Pacific. She is the author or editor of eight books, including Nuclear Madness, Missile Envy, and most recently, Sleepwalking to Armageddon. She has been the recipient of many awards and honorary degrees, the subject of three award-winning documentary films, and was named one of the 20th century's most influential women by the Smithsonian Institute. Well, Helen, thank you so much for joining us today. Like I was saying earlier, you have been a huge inspiration of mine from the very beginnings of this podcast. So it is really a dream come true to have you on the show today. Thank you. So before we discuss the realities of nuclear power plants and the proliferation and weapons that nuclear creates, I'd like to recognize the profound nature of this topic and the ways in which the creation of this nuclear world has induced multiple traumas that continue to echo across humanity today. In particular, I'm thinking about the relationship between people and the land. Now, through the violent projects of uranium mining and weapons testing, a tremendous theft of land and violation of the body has occurred. I think about the indigenous communities across the southwestern United States who experienced uranium contamination long before the bomb was built to completion, as well as the women in the Marshall Islands who suffered multiple miscarriages and gave birth to severely disfigured babies in the aftermath of U.S. nuclear testing in the Pacific. And so I feel that it's not an exaggeration to say that each process in the nuclear fuel cycle destroys all of what it comes into contact with. So Helen, perhaps you could begin by sharing how you see nuclearism as a direct violation to Earth itself. 
Well, if we have a nuclear war tonight or tomorrow, it will destroy most of the species on the planet because Russia and America have 94% of all the nuclear weapons in the world. They're on hair trigger alert. Donald Trump has a three-minute decision time whether or not to press the button. He's the only one who can and will. The suitcase containing the codes for nuclear war is with him at all times. He's a fairly deranged character. And Russia and America, because they have so many weapons and they're on hair trigger alert, meaning they're ready to go with the press of the button, and it's called launch on warning. If the computers and radars pick up missiles coming from Russia, and this has happened many times by accident, the missiles weren't really coming, but it was a mistake, then during that time, the button gets pressed on the other side. Or America could go for a first strike and go first. It would create such a huge mass of radioactive black smog that would be pushed into the stratosphere and that cloud would circle the earth and for 10 years block out the sun, producing what we call nuclear winter, and everything and everyone would freeze to death in the dark. And that could happen tonight. So we're on the verge of annihilation, the verge of extinction, created by E equals MC squared. The energy in, in an atom equals the speed of light times the mass squared. And no one talks about it. And it could happen tonight. The men in the missile silos <clears throat> in America, about 240 silos, I think, they take drugs before they go down there. They go to sleep on the job. They're run by floppy disks, not proper computers. Their phones don't always work. <laughs> I can't tell you the number of times we've come so close to a global annihilation and nobody, but nobody talks about it, including the people running for president now in the presidential debate. So I'll talk about climate change, yeah. That's very serious and I think that it's inevitable that we will reach three degrees centigrade above normal by 2050 or anyway, by the end of the century. And so will we end with a whimper or a bang? And nobody really is addressing this. Well, Helen, thank you for being so direct and clear with us about something that I agree is not being talked about nearly enough for the severity of um it's not talked it's not talked about at all right exactly the threat of nuclear war and our global annihilation is not being discussed period mm -hmm. and the bulletin of the atomic scientist has a clock and it's had it for all oh, many 40 50 years and it's moved to 100 seconds to midnight it's the closest it's ever been to the threat of nuclear war, we're closer than we've ever been. Mm -hmm. And partly because it's been totally ignored by the media. You know, Jefferson said an informed democracy will behave in a responsible fashion. And I was responsible for educating the American people during the 80s about the medical implications of nuclear war. And so everybody knew about it. We got a million people in Central Park in, in 82. I mean, the biggest rally in the history of the United States. But now everyone's supremely ignorant. And unless Mr. and Mrs. Joe Sixpack understand what the dangers are, nothing is going to happen. Mm -hmm. And I said that will we end with a whimper or a bang? Whimper, global warming, you know, everyone dies of heat prostration and the animals and plants die or like that with the nuclear war. Mm -hmm. This is where we are and no one's talking about it. They're vaguely mentioning climate change, but they're not really talking about the real issues. Mm -hmm. I agree with that. Now, I want to talk about uranium, and I know that uranium is vital to the development of nuclear energy and weapons as it is the only material that can sustain a fission chain reaction, meaning that we have mined uranium thoughtlessly over the past couple of decades. Across the United States, there are over 15,000 abandoned uranium mines, and currently no existing federal laws require any cleanup of these sites because they were established under the General Mining Law of 1872, which requires no remediation of abandoned sites. So while I frame this question in context to the United States, 
I'm wondering if you could speak to the severity and length of uranium mining globally, and can mines ever meaningfully be remediated? Well, I don't know. I mean, uranium-238 and 235, the two isotopes, last virtually forever. Uh, how many did you say? 17,000 uranium mines across America? 15,000 abandoned uranium mines. Yeah, abandoned. And and most many are occupied by indigenous populations. Uh, it's just a horrifying scenario, and clearly they'll never be remediated or cleaned up, and they'll be polluting the water supplies and the food and, and the air and the like forever. So what can I say, uh, you know? It's terribly, terribly, terribly dangerous. And the government is absolutely corrupt and negligent, to say the least, leaving these abandoned mines open to the air and the water and populations, particularly Indigenous people. Uranium is highly carcinogenic. What can I say? <laughs> and we've got a lot of uranium in Australia too. But the point, the truth is that nuclear power is clearly on the wane it's terribly expensive it takes 15 to 20 years to build a nuclear power plant i love the way they call them plants it's a nuclear reactor and renewable energy now is so much cheaper than nuclear or coal or anything else and it's growing in leaps and bounds solar wind geothermal so nuclear is on the way out. But the problem is still, they're still building a few more. And there's a huge amount, hundreds of thousands of tonnes of high-level radioactive waste, and no one knows where to put it. It must be isolated from the ecosphere for a million years, according to the EPA. And uh, no one knows where to put it. There's nowhere to put it. And as it leaks over time... It, leaking the isotopes, cesium, strontium, plutonium, americium. I mean, there are uh, over 100 specific radioactive elements into the air and water. These elements concentrate in the food chain like algae, 100 times crustaceans, 100 times little fish, 100 times big fish, 100 times, and then us. Uh, you can't taste, smell, or see these radioactive elements. They lodge in various organs, liver, lung, bone, testicles, ovaries, the like, and mutate genes called the regulatory genes in cells. And when they're mutated, the cell will, after some time, some years, start reproducing without any regulation, producing trillions of cells, and that's a cancer. Also, it can damage the fetus. Plutonium crosses a placenta because it's seen by the body as iron. Placenta lets nothing through into the developing embryo, but it does let iron in. And like the drug thalidomide, plutonium can kill a cell that's going to form the right arm, the left half of the brain and the like. That's called teratogenesis. We had a bumper sticker in Australia called plutonium is thalidomide forever. Um, and, and so we're going to see, and then genetic diseases, there are over 2,600 genetic diseases, including my specialty, cystic fibrosis now. And so what the radioactive waste will do is produce random compulsory genetic engineering for the rest of time, not just in humans, but in all animals and plants, because all our genes operate the same way. Random compulsory genetic engineering, epidemics of leukemia, cancer, congenital abnormalities, genetic diseases forevermore. That's, and because the, the American Nuclear Society doesn't know what to do with its radioactive waste, they've got a bill in Congress called the Radioactive, oh, I can't think of it now, uh, they assume that they will find the answer to storing radioactive waste over time, but they won't and they can't. As every nuclear reactor keeps operating, it makes more and more of this filthy, dangerous, toxic carcinogenic material. It's absolutely obscene from a medical perspective. Mm -hmm. 
Well, thank you for speaking to the health, just travesties that come from. It's called the the radioactive waste confidence bill, saying that they've got confidence over time that they'll work out what to do. (laughs) It's disgusting. It's classic classic male thinking, left brain thinking. That's why we need women to take over that. Well, I agree with that. And <laughs> not the men. Yeah. And, you know, the men are on to abortion and stuff. If they don't want abortion, they all should have vasectomies because they're the ones that make the babies. Mm. They're the ones that initiate the babies. They should have vasectomies. Mm-hmm. It's insanity, Helen. It really is. When I think that there are 428 nuclear reactors globally, 103 of them are in the United States, And currently, it's estimated that over one in three Americans live within 50 miles of a nuclear power plant. So it's astonishing to think of how many of us are in proximity to radioactive elements in our air and water. Well, it's been shown in three studies in France, America, and I think Britain, that children living within five miles of a reactor double the incidence of leukemia because nuclear reactors continually emit tritium. Now, tritium is H3O, water is H2O. Tritium is very carcinogenic. It can be absorbed through the skin. If there's a fog around a nuclear reactor and the tritium's in the fog, they can't operate reactors without tritium being extruded continuously into the air and the water. And tritium can be absorbed through the skin. It gets into the body through the GI tract it can be inhaled and it's very carcinogenic and if you want to know what the nuclear industry thinks of it go to the Journal of Health Physics every year they close the reactor down and replace the they call it spent fuel but the fuel has become so radioactive and packed with radioactive elements that make the fuel rods inefficient to produce power they take them out and during that time the shutdown Large amounts of radioactive material are emitted into the air and water surrounding the reactor. What else can I say? I mean, <laughs> and then, of course, there are always, uh, there's always a possibility of an accident, minor or major, like Three Mile Island, like Chernobyl, where over a million people now have died in Europe and, and Russia from cancer, leukemia, uh, there are homes full of grossly deformed children who have been impacted by the radioactive elements getting into them when they are fetuses. The epidemics of diabetes, cancer, leukemia, progeria, early aging in children, heart attacks. I could go on and on. And the best document to read about this is called Chernobyl, published by the New York Academy of Science comprises 5,000 papers written by Russian physicians and epidemiologists and the like on the ground data, whereas the WHO, World Health Organization, they just work out how much radiation got out by equations and etc. They don't actually measure it and then they extrapolate from how much radiation got out to the amount of dose that people would have received, you know, a mile away, three miles away, 100 miles away. It's all by calculations. It's not actually looking at the patients. So don't take any notice of the WHO and what they talk about in terms of abnormalities relating to Chernobyl. And in Fukushima, they are only looking at thyroid cancer. Radiation causes every sort of cancer and leukemia and all the other abnormalities I've described. So, and and if a doctor tells a patient that their symptoms may be related to Fukushima and radiation, the doctor loses their government funding in Japan. There's a big lockdown on what actually is happening to the people in Japan. And the Olympics are going to start in Fukushima That's where the torch relay starts. The ground is extremely radioactive with radioactive elements on the ground emitting what we call gamma radiation like x-rays. And these lovely young Olympians, you know, trained all their lives 
are going to be exposed to this and by inhaling radioactive elements coming up in the dust and in their food, let alone all the others. Now, I have to say that with the epidemic that's now occurring with the coronavirus, I think they'll be cancelling the Olympics. That's what I think. And wouldn't that be wonderful? <laughs> the reason that Prime Minister Abe sought to have the Olympics near Fukushima was to whitewash the whole mm -hmm. thing. He's a wicked, wicked, evil man. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, the, and the nuclear industry really runs the parliament in, in Tokyo. Wow. Oh, my goodness. That is some intense truths, and I really appreciate you explaining that. And I was actually reading this past month that it was announced that the Japanese government made a case for dumping contaminated water from the Fukushima nuclear power plant into the ocean, arguing that there is no other... No, I think other... they're, going to, they're going to do that. Right. They're going to do that. They've got a million tons of very radioactive water in thousands of tanks right next to the ocean. If there's another earthquake greater than seven on the Richter scale, those tanks will all collapse. They're only built to last not very many years. And they're running out of space. Now, that water comes from the three molten reactors that melted their way into the ground, into the earth. And they have to pour water in all the time to keep the reactor cores cool or else they'll they'll melt down again and release huge amounts of radiation. That water is extremely radioactive, and that's the water that's in the tanks that they want to release into the ocean, and that's where the fish live and, the you know, the algae and, and all the rest. It's absolutely obscene, and this is a situation that will never end. In fact, I held a conference at the New York Academy of Medicine on Fukushima, and a book came out of it called Crisis Without End. And it, it will never be resolved. They'll never clean it up. They'll never decommission the site. They'll never get those molten reactors out of, of the earth because if any man goes near it for a few seconds, the radiation dose is so high he'll die in a few minutes. And who's addressing this? And the Pacific will get more and more radioactive and the fish swim thousands of miles. And we in Australia live on the Pacific coast. You live on the Pacific coast. You know? You can't taste, smell or see the radiation in the fish. And we fight like mad to save the life of one patient with cancer, one, or with a genetic disease like cystic fibrosis. This is a medical issue. Always starts with a trickle, then begins to flow. gosh it's unbelievable the inability to deal with the nuclear waste and the health impacts and just the blatant industrial vandalism of fukushima and how little media attention it gets like it's nobody is talking about fukushima it's so under wraps that they're fighting not i mean probably not even fighting hard to dump the nuclear waste into the ocean that it will affect everybody. The oceans circulate. The fish circulate, like you were saying. So it's it's just disgusting. And it's astonishing that in the 70 years or so of the creation of nuclear material, we have yet to come up with 
any solution for storing it. And in the United States, there is there, there will there will be no solution. Right. There's no solution. There will be no solution. And the other thing is that America is threatening Russia all the time. And all the little countries in Eastern Europe that got liberated after the Berlin Wall fell down and the Cold War ended, they all joined NATO and America's got missiles in all those little countries threatening Russia right on the border. They're sending ships and aircraft carriers into the Pacific Ocean to challenge China. I mean, these men in the Pentagon, <laughs> I won't use a rude term, but they're unbelievable. It's insane. And it's men that run the world. I mean, they're into, they're all fighting against each other all the time. And men have done that ever since we became humans. And now they've got nuclear weapons. That's it. Well, so going back to the storage, you know, there's um, currently the Nuclear Regulatory Commission is considering a proposal by Holtec International, a private company to build an interim storage facility that would hold up to 100,000 metric tons of spent nuclear fuel. So I'm wondering if you could Where? continue Where? to speak. Where? You know, I, Where? I don't know where that is, but I'm... Wondering if you could also... They haven't got a site. They haven't got a site. But even if they did get a site, I mean, just the potential catastrophe that could happen in the transportation of the material, you know, I, I just, I could only imagine the threats of even transporting that material to a site could be devastating. Correct. Correct. Trains have crashes. Mm-hmm. Trucks have crashes. Holtec makes canisters to put the radioactive mm. spent fuel rods in mm-hmm. and they're, they're not very thick mm-hmm. and within a few years they can break down, whereas in Europe the canisters they use are much thicker in width than the materials storing them that I suppose it's steel. Holtec I wouldn't trust as far as I could kick it. <laughs> it shouldn't be done by a private company anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I'm thinking back to a series of photographs that were taken of mutated flowers in the aftermath of the 1979 Three Mile Island incident or accident. And these images reminded me of the ways in which nuclearism creates its own kind of nature. On the expanse of lands that surround the Los Alamos National Laboratory in present-day New Mexico, scientists have found the shrub Chamisa contains a quantity of strontium-90 that is 300,000 times that of normal shrubbery because Chamisa mistakes strontium-90 for calcium. And I'm also wondering how our understanding of, you know, quote, nature changes in relation to nuclear proliferation. How does Chamisa, in this case, also exemplify that nuclear byproducts cannot be contained or managed? It's a very, very good point you've made because our bodies think strontium-90 is calcium that's laid down in bone, where it irradiates immature white blood cells, which can mutate to produce leukaemia, which is cancer of the white blood cells, white blood. It can produce osteogenic sarcomas, which are ghastly tumours of bone, which spread to the lung. And so the plants mirror us and they treat these radioactive elements not knowing they're radioactive as ordinary calcium and potassium and the like so you're right and i i wish i had my book my chernobyl book handy but i don't think i do um which would show you photographs of the grossly deformed children at chernobyl mm-hmm. well to continue along this thread i'm thinking about how contamination spreads to our more-than-human kin through the food chain. Now, in the past year, I believe that there has been an increase in radioactive boar globally. In the Czech Republic, boars have been consuming mushrooms made up of cesium-137, which bled into the soil in the aftermath of Chernobyl, and then Japan have also reported radioactive boars. So I'd like to ask how radioactive isotopes make their way into the food chain. Well, you've just said it. The boars or wild pigs eat the mushrooms. Uh, and the, there are wild boars in Germany that's so radioactive they almost glow in the dark. 
the reindeers eat the lichen in the Arctic Circle, which concentrates radioactive elements, and they become radioactive. People love reindeer meat. And if people say, oh, look, the wildlife's all come back around Chernobyl, well, there's a wonderful biologist called Timothy Mousseau, who's been looking at the wildlife around Chernobyl, particularly the uh, swallows. And he's finding that 40% of the male swallows are sterile, that many of them have cataracts and humans are developing cataracts now. That's what they found in the studies for that book, Chernobyl, that uh, they have mutations, crooked wings, white feathers. They have tumours all over them. And what happens to swallows happens to us. And the work he's doing, he's an evolutionary biologist, Tim Musso, Dr. Tim Musso. It's amazing the work he's doing. He's going into the exclusion zones around Fukushima and Chernobyl, looking at the butterflies, at the birds, at the plants, at the animals. And he really should be getting a Nobel Prize because the work he's doing will undo the Nuclear Regulatory Commission and all the regulations that those people who don't understand radiation biology have developed. He is in highly radioactive areas, so he's in that way threatening his own life and health. He should get the Nobel Prize. Well, thank you for mentioning him. He's definitely been put on my list. And now, Helen, I'd like to turn to weapon sites that have been converted into wildlife refuges. And I believe in the United States, there are now six contaminated sites that have purposefully been reclassified as wildlife refuges, which seems like a really bizarre reshaping of nuclear sacrifice zones into sanctuaries. And I'm thinking about the way nuclearism creates these very unique geographies. And I'd like to ask if there is any success to be found within this sort of model of letting a poisoned place be or if these refuges actually spread contaminated biota through migratory fauna? Well, the answer to, to that is obvious, isn't it? I mean, yeah. it's just obscene what they're doing at Rocky Flats, mm -hmm. which is littered with plutonium. They had two huge fires of plutonium at Rocky Flats, and the plutonium actually reached Denver. And you're right that the fauna, the rabbits and the moles, and it transport the radioactive material off-site, in their feces and the like, that people live around rocky flats as a higher incidence of normal and of testicular cancer and other sort of cancers. And it's absolutely obscene what they're doing, absolutely obscene. I know about rocky flats. What are the other five sites? There's the Big Oaks National Wildlife Refuge in Indiana. I also have the, uh, the Hanford Reach National Monument but it's just, yeah. you know, there's an epidemic of anencephalic babies born to the east of Hanford. Now, anencephalic babies are babies born with no brains. They have a base of a skull. They have a midbrain. I delivered with such a baby. They'll cry, suck, and breathe, but they die after a few days. There's an epidemic of them caused by Hanford. Hanford is the most radioactive site in the world. That's where they manufactured plutonium for most of the bombs that they built in the Cold War. Do you know, over the years of the Cold War, America made 77,000 nuclear weapons. 77,000. What, what can you say? Absolute nuclear madness. And I wrote a book called Nuclear Madness. Absolute nuclear madness. And no one... No one is talking about it. Mm -mm. I wish I was running for president and I could be on those platforms. <laughs> In fact, I wish I was president because mm -hmm. well, it's very hard to fix the issues that we've been talking about, I have to say. But we should stop making nuclear weapons now mm -hmm. and we should abolish the ones we've got by undoing them. And I don't know where you put the plutonium, et cetera, that lasts for half a million years and is one of the most carcinogenic materials that we know. There is a law developing in the United Nations to abolish nuclear weapons. It needs the ratification of 50 countries. I think they've got ratified there up to about 28 now. And when it becomes law, 
that means all countries have to abolish nuclear weapons. However, they developed a similar law on landmines at the United Nations, and guess what? Trump has violated that law and says we can use landmines again. That man is evil. Mm-hmm. He's evil. He's a Hitler. It's insanity. It is It is absolute insanity, and it's important that we're talking about this because I agree. If I don't hear you talking about it, I don't hear it being spoken about, which is crazy. And in preparing for this interview, I came across a commissioned report by Sandia National Labs, which asked two interdisciplinary teams to create multiple scenarios and designs that could effectively mark sites as being deadly without solely relying on language. The premise being that radioactive sites will exist for thousands of years, perhaps outliving this iteration of civilization. And if so, we have a responsibility to deter human intrusion into these deadly spaces. Now, I think this report reveals a tremendous amount about our ideals, projections, and how we are consciously reflecting upon sacrifice zones. And I'm curious if you have any reflections on this, or perhaps whether or not you think nuclearism embodies our ideals or humanity's ideals. Well, it's not an ideal, is it? Nuclearism? (laughs) Yeah. It's an aberration. It's a madness. Um, It's a psychosis. Nuclear psychosis. I know that they've been trying for decades to develop signs to put on nuclear sites so that future generations won't dig in and find out what what the stuff is in them. Uh, But they, I mean, how do they know how people in future generations will will think or feel or what their knowledge will be and there's no sign you can put on a nuclear site to say don't get in here because we don't know what languages they'll be speaking or it's nuclear psychosis you could put this site is a sign and declaration of nuclear psychosis (laughs) anyway you can't do that because you don't know if they'll be speaking english or language they'll be speaking if there are any people left if we haven't had a nuclear war and and annihilated ourselves or if global warming hasn't killed off all the human beings on the planet which is quite likely yeah well conversations on nuclear energy have somewhat subsided in popularity, like you were mentioning earlier in our conversation. However, nuclear energy is still often hidden within the category of so-called clean energy. And I suspect that the next time there is widespread concern about our nation's energy situation, support for nuclear could rise again. So why is it impossible to consider nuclear energy a form of clean energy And why are arguments that suggest nuclear energy can produce a self-reliant country completely baseless? Well, by the time you dig up the uranium, you separate it from the ore, you enrich the uranium 235 to 3% for nuclear power plants, you you manufacture the zirconium fuel rods, you make the uranium in little pellets, You build the reactor, 8% of global warming CO2 comes from the manufacture of concrete. A reactor is built of concrete. As the uranium ore degrades in concentration, they've mostly dug up all the highly concentrated uranium ores and they're getting down to low ones. So it takes a huge amount of energy to enrich the uranium to 3%. You use... The amount of CO2 produced in producing all of this fuel chain that I just described is the same as probably a coal-fired plant. And then you've got the radioactive waste to store for a million years. So there's no net energy reduction by using nuclear power. In fact, there's probably more as the concentration of the uranium ore decreases. And then you've got to store this radioactive waste forever, which will require also huge amounts of energy and transport it and the like. And it takes 10 to 15, 20 years to build a nuclear power plant these days. And it costs 15 to $20 billion to build. And the radioactive waste will produce epidemics of cancer, leukemia, genetic disease and congenital deformities for the rest of time. How can they call it clean energy? How dare they? 
as Greta Thunberg would say, how dare they? How dare they? like to draw in a conversation that is perhaps a bit more personal in nature and invite you to speak to your own experiences organizing with physicians for social responsibility and why was it so important that the medical community intervene in the conversations on nuclear proliferation and as an existential threat to humanity can you speak to the parallels between nuclear war and climate change Do you think that as humans, we have the capacity to understand these threats? And if so, why is it that generally these are two issues which have really only gotten worse? Um, Well, you know, I've, I've spoken to audiences throughout the world of thousands of people as a doctor. And what I do when I start talking is I give them fact after fact after fact, and I educate them about radiation, about mutation, about global warming, the whole thing. And then towards the end, when I've developed my credibility and you can feel them sort of relax, thinking, who is this mad doctor, to thinking, oh, she really knows what she's <laughs> talking about. If I go for their souls and I talk about what value they put on their own lives, let alone their children and what responsibility they have. And in that way, I got round through what we call grand rounds every week Hospitals have a meeting where they all the doctors come and they learn about the latest in nephrology or cardiology or brain tumours. And I would do the grand rounds this week on the medical implications of nuclear power and nuclear war. And that way, by one-to-one engagement, I was able to recruit 23,000 physicians, two physicians for social responsibility, and they were totally pliable. I mean, there's nothing you can say that would negate the facts and I would do that to a lay audience too like of 2,000 people or I addressed a million people in Central Park in 1982 and I thought what am I going to talk to them about and I had three minutes so I dropped the bomb on them and uh, and vaporized them all and and you know described the medical implications of bomb dropping on New York so it was relatively easy to use the medical terminology and transcribe that to the lay language for lay audiences, but medical for the medical audience, to engage hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people. And that was my experience. And that's what needs to happen today. I was lucky to have an agent in New York, in Hollywood, who represented the film stars like John Cruise and Lily Tomlin, Sally Field. And she worked for me for free and she used the film stars to get me on Donahue and Merv Griffin and the Today Show and 60 Minutes and the like. They don't want a boring old doctor in a tweed suit with an Australian accent talking about nuclear war because that turns the audience off and then they won't buy their toothpaste or their missile erectors. No, (laughs) what is it called (laughs) when they have trouble getting their penises erect? (laughs) <laughs> anyway, the stuff that they take. <laughs> so, but but they all wanted Sally or Lily. So that was the 
the vehicle by which Pat got me to address millions and millions and millions of American people. And I'd go mm. to the checkout counter at the airport and sign in and the guy said, I saw you on 60 Minutes last night. You're absolutely right. So it's once again what Jefferson said, an informed democracy will behave in a responsible fashion. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I taught the doctors themselves how to talk on radio, on television, how to write letters to the editor, how to write op-ed pieces, you know, how to educate their own communities. Mm -hmm. That was in the 80s. Then the Cold War ended and everything stopped. In the States, we're accustomed to a lot of rhetoric that positions Americans as the only global power responsible enough to regulate nuclear weapons and to be trusted with nuclear weapons, that it's our responsibility to gatekeep the proliferation of any further weapons without relinquishing our own, of course. Yet historically, the U.S. is the only country to have abused these weapons. So I would love if you could just speak to the absurdity of this notion and perhaps also make reference to deterrence as a concept and some of the obvious fallacies of deterrence. Deterrence is ridiculous. Mm -hmm. We've got enough bombs to bomb you out of into extinction. That's our deterrence. Don't you do anything that we don't want you to do. Let us come in and mine your lithium. Let us come in and take all your oil. Let us come in and take all your gas. Let us chop all your forests down. America has 800 military bases around the world in 80 countries. How dare they? Who does America think it is? Who does it think it is? And yet it tells North Korea it can't have nuclear weapons when it's got over 5,000 itself? I mean... It's, it just takes my breath away. What, what can I say? And they've led the nuclear arms race at every step of the way except one. And Russia blindly copied and followed. And now there are eight countries with nuclear weapons. India, Pakistan, and the nuclear war could easily start there. It's so volatile. France, China, England. England lost her empire, so she's got nuclear weapons instead. America, Russia, and North Korea. Mm-hmm. Well, Helen, I'm so grateful for your honesty and your courage to speak so clearly to this. And in closing, I'd it's like... It's not courage, darling. It's not mm -hmm. courage. I'm a doctor. Mm -hmm. I have to tell the patients the truth. I'm a mm -hmm. doctor. I practice global preventive medicine. Well, <laughs> I still feel like there are many doctors and many folks who should be this direct and honest, and they aren't. And so I do think that mm. your willingness and determination to be so honest about things that are so challenging because there are no solutions, and it's not sellable, and it's not something that makes people want to consume more, um, and therefore, you know, people don't want to talk about it because it is so devastating and it is such a mess that we have created. So I am really appreciative of your courage. And in closing, I would like to ask you about nuclear proliferation and global politics. And interesting enough, over half of millennials globally believe that it is likely that a nuclear attack will occur within the next decade. So if you could please speak to the current status of nuclear proliferation and, well, you spoke a little bit about the status of the global ban on nuclear weapons in terms of the um, United Nations, but if there are any other points on that matter, I would really love to hear that. Well, I don't think America will listen to anyone in the world, especially with Donald Trump. He's a dictator. He's a fascist. He's a Hitler. We'll be lucky if we survive Donald Trump. We'll be lucky if we survive a nuclear war induced by accidents. Human beings are fallible and we've got weapons with which we have to be infallible. And America's spending $1.7 trillion over the next 30 years replacing every single nuclear weapon, missile, ship, plane with new ones. Why? Because who runs your government? Your government is full of corporate prostitutes who take money from Lockheed Martin, Boeing, Northrop Grumman, BAE, all of these revolting weapons industries. They spend over a trillion dollars a year on weapons, on death. It's not the Department of Defense. It's the Department of Death. Mm -hmm. 
because these weapons are made to kill people. Half your taxes go to death every year. How come you let these evil, evil corporations subsume you, take your money when you don't even have a free medical care system like we do in Australia, when you don't have free education, where people are starving in the streets, where huge numbers of your people are homeless? How can you allow that to happen? Because people have shares in the military-industrial complex, the rich people that Bernie talks about, these military-industrial complexes, they run the government. They give the money to the Congress people to run for their elections. In Australia, voting is compulsory. If we don't vote, we get fined. Your government is run by, the whole government's run by the military-industrial complex instead of, as Bernie's saying, it all should be free. Vote for Bernie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we might have a little chance of survival mm-hmm. if Bernie gets to be president. Yeah. Uh, well, Helen, this has been a very, well, I wanted to say eye-opening conversation, but, you know, I've listened to uh, many of your talks, and so I, I felt somewhat educated on the matter. But I think because this topic is not brought up nearly enough, it's almost as if I can not so much forget about it, but I could put it on the far, far, far back burner. And then speaking to you again, it just brings it so to the forefront and reminds me that this is not an issue that is forgettable. (laughs) This is not an issue that can just be kind of shoved away because other things feel more important. And so I really am appreciative that you have brought this back up again so strongly and you shook me up and I needed that. You got me back into thinking about this oh, more good. clearly. So I appreciate it on a personal yes. level. Very good. And some mm. good research. Thank you, Helen. Well, for you, I'd have to. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah. Thanks, Bobby. Thank you. Have okay. a good one. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to another episode of For the Wild Podcast. I'm audio producer Andrew Storrs. The music you heard today was from Rupa and the April Fishes and Cat Clyde. I'd like to thank our host and founder, Ayana Young, as well as the rest of our podcast production team, Francesca Glassbell, Carter Lou McElroy, Erica Ekram, and Melanie Younger. <laughs>